I'll invite you to turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 17. This is what the word of the Lord says in Luke 6, 17. It says, And he, talking about Jesus, came down with them, the apostles, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Join me in prayer again. Father, we come to you now as we come before your word and we ask you, to open our eyes, open our hearts to the truth of what your word says. Help us to understand it and to believe it. God, I pray that uh, you would encourage your people that are here as we come to your word. And Lord, may we all come away confident uh, that we are in fact in Christ and trusting in our great high priest, the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. It's common in our world to place an individual into a particular group and then assign to that person all the characteristics of said group. So, this group could be based on your skin color, it could be based on gender, sexual orientation, political affiliation, environmental view, social status, or any combination of those things. So, you get placed into one of those groups And then uh, you get assigned all the characteristics of that group. And then these groups, uh, in turn, get pitted against one another. At least that's how it plays out in the political realm uh, and elsewhere. And this is often, typically, it's a very oversimplified view uh, of humanity. And it doesn't take into proper account um, just the, the many complicated variables that go into making an individual who they are. Interestingly, however, the scriptures, a more accurate guide into humanity, the scriptures do speak of two types of people in this world. And every single person falls into one or the other of these two groups. So one is either... In Christ, they're a Christian who is reconciled with God, united to Christ by faith, or one is in Adam. That is, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, and they're under 
The wrath of God abides on them, Jesus says in John 3. And these two groups, those in Christ, those in Adam, they do have distinct characteristics that apply to all of them. So there's certainly, yes, you know, there's more that could be said about these individuals uh, that are in either group, Um, but this is the fundamental distinction. There are two groups of people. There are sheep and there are goats. There are Christians, there are unchristians. Believers, unbelievers. There are those in Christ and those who are in Adam. And as we come now in our study of Luke to the Sermon on the Mount, as it's commonly called, or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, as it's commonly called, we see Christ begin this sermon, his teaching, by giving us a stark contrast between these two groups. And it leaves us asking this question, which group do I belong to? So Jesus, he makes this contrast by the use of uh, a, a prophetic pronouncement of blessing on the one group and of woe on the other group, a curse on the other group. So in verses 20 to 23, we see the blessings pronounced, and for every blessing, there is then a corresponding woe in verses 24 to 26. But just before we, we launch into the, these Beatitudes, uh, I just want to back up a bit and see the context uh, and just say a few words to set this up. So we read uh, verses 17 through 19, and in these verses we have a summary, uh, a summary statement of Jesus' ministry at this time, which also forms a, con- uh, a, a transition to the next section. So uh, Jesus' sermon begins in verse 20, and it goes through to the end of the chapter. Uh, We've already seen Christ preach once back in chapter 4 when he uh, taught uh, Isaiah 61, if you recall that. So we have now another uh, set of teaching by the Lord Jesus. And, And these verses 17 to 19, they provide the setting and also transition us into that into that larger section. So we're told in verse 17 that Jesus came down with them, it says. So that is, uh, he was up on this mountain with, uh, with, uh, where he named the 12 apostles. He chose them out of, the tw- out of this larger group of disciples, named 12 apostles. We looked at the other week, last week. And, and they're up on this mountain, and now it says he comes down with them. And he stood on a level place, it says. And then this crowd, they get, start gathering, and they we're told they're from all over. Uh, and it includes even Gentiles, those who are not Jews, people from Tyre and Sidon, which is on the, the Mediterranean coast. And we're told that they came for two main reasons in verse 18. They came to hear him, and they came to be healed of their diseases. So these are the reasons people are coming. And so then verse 18 and 19, these describe the healings. These are just a summary of the, of the healings. Uh, so... It says he was healing those who came with diseases and those who had unclean, uh, that is, demonic spirits. We've, we've talked about this previously. We've seen uh, other examples of, of this work of Jesus healing uh, the sick and, and uh, casting out unclean demons from those who are afflicted by them. 
And so that, that's, that's the, the summary in verse 18 and 19 of these people coming to be healed. And then in verse 20, the focus then shifts to what it was they came and heard. What it was that Jesus then taught these people. So the reason it's called, uh, you know, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Plain is because of verse 17 where it says, we're told he came down and stood on a level place. A, a problem or a confusion occurs at this point uh, when we see that this sermon that we're about to get into for the next few weeks uh, is very similar to what we find in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. But in Matthew, we're told that Jesus went up to the mountain and then delivered this sermon, hence the, the name, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're maybe more familiar with that, that phrase. So, the, the question, you know, is, is this a contradiction, right? Well, I say, of course, this is not. This is not a contradiction, and there's, there's no need to jump to that conclusion. So, uh, some people say that uh, because of the differences between Matthew, you know, the Sermon on the Mount that we see in Matthew and what we find in Luke, uh, so just a couple of those differences. In Matthew, the sermon's much longer. It covers three chapters in Matthew, Chapters 5, 6, and 7. In Luke, it's much shorter. Uh, it's just, it's just uh, starting in chap- verse 20 through to the end of chapter 2. So it's a little shorter uh, because the location maybe appears to be a, dif- uh, a bit different. Uh, some people then conclude that these are, in fact, two separate sermons. They're different sermons. Uh, one was on a mountain. One was in a level plain. Of course, that's possible that those are two different sermons. Uh, it wouldn't be... Uh, Weird for Jesus to preach two different sermons that were very similar and covered uh, very similar or even the same themes or had some of the same words. That wouldn't be a strange thing at all. Um, So that's a possible solution to the apparent problem. But I think that's an unnecessary one. So when Luke, here's what I think. When Luke uh, says that Jesus came down to a level place, I think what he means is that he came down relative to where he had previously been on the mountain. So he's come down a ways to a plateau, but he's still on the mountain. It's a level place on the mountain that could accommodate the crowd that was coming to him. And the fact is, there are hills, there are mountains like this um, all around uh, Galilee, which is where he is. We don't know exactly where he is, but around Capernaum, where he quite plausibly is here when he delivers this, um, there are hills, there are mountains like this where you can come down part way and there's a, a, a flat level area where these crowds could be accommodated. So that seems to me to be uh, the best solution to that apparent conflict. So then what we have in Matthew and in Luke are two accounts or two summaries of really the same preaching, the same sermon of Jesus. Matthew has more of it included in his gospel And the two writers, they focus on slightly different emphases in the message, but it is, in fact, the same message that they're they're, uh, bringing. And this is a legitimate way of of passing this on to us. So, we have the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain. Either one might come out of my mouth, uh, but you now know what what I'm talking about. So, there are three three groups of people that are mentioned in these verses 17 to 19. Um, that, 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 come, uh, that are around Jesus at this time. 
Uh, so first we have the apostles, right? He, last week we saw, verses 12 to 16, that he was up on the higher part of the mountain with these apostles, naming them, uh, calling them out from the other disciples. Uh, that's who comes down with him in verse 17. We're told of other disciples. These are uh, uh, the larger body of disciples who followed after Jesus. And, uh, and then we have uh, this uh, great multitude from all over, Tyre, Sidon, Jerusalem, Judea, all around, and these would be those who have maybe a less you know, intimate connection uh, with Jesus, but they've come to hear what he has to say, and, and some of them are coming and being healed as well. And so then Jesus turns, uh, in verse 20, and he proclaims this sermon to this group of people. But in verse 20, we see that he's aiming uh, primarily at his disciples. It says that he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And he said, so then he, he preaches to them. So he's primarily speaking to those trusting in him, though it's clearly for everyone who's got ears to hear. Uh, verse 27, I think, hints at that as well, uh, which we'll get to another time. And so, as I said, uh, at, at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus begins with bringing people to a moment of truth. A moment of truth. Am I blessed of God, or am I under his wrath? Do these woes hang over my head? This is how he, he begins the sermon. And he does this by, by four contrasts, contrasting the characteristics of true disciples, those who are truly born again and are trusting in the Lord Jesus, giving four characteristics of them and four characteristics of those who are not true disciples. So just before we start to get into those, one other thing. Uh, this sermon has been uh, abused and misunderstood in various ways throughout the history of the church. And uh, ultimately, what the Sermon on the Mount shows us uh, is, that, is, is our great need for the new birth. For being made new within. So some people want to take, you know, rush ahead to all of the commands that Jesus gives, and there are a lot of them, and they are good, uh, and they want to just jump straight into the ethics, and, uh, and, this, and, and even sometimes view it as, you keep these commands in order to be blessed. But that's, that's not what's, what's happening here. If you want to take that approach to this sermon, you're going to be crushed under its weight. Because you will never live up to the standard that Jesus is going to give us. This is really clear in Matthew's version, where ultimately the pinnacle of it is when Jesus tells the people that they are to be perfect. That's the standard of righteousness that Jesus is getting at. This is God's standard. It's perfection. And so if you want to say, we keep this in order to then be blessed of God and enter into heaven, then you're never going to make it. And so what this, this entire sermon does is it helps us see, among other things, it, it helps us see our need to be made new within. Our need to have, to be born again, to be given a new heart, to have our heart of stone be taken away and have a heart of flesh uh, placed within it. To what, what Paul describes as being made a new creation, a new creature. That's the great need. And so when, when he gets into these, this blessed are, He's describing characteristics of those who have been born again. And the woes are describing those and are for those who have not been. 
And so we have these four contrasts, and we're just going to cover two of them today. We're going to try and do all four, but you all want to eat and go home So at some point. So we're going to just do two, and we'll do the rest uh, next week. So the first contrast is this. The first contrast is between those who know their spiritual poverty, that would be Christians, those born again, versus those who do not, versus those who have no recognition of their need. So those who know their spiritual poverty and those who do not. So look again at verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then the contrasting woe in verse 24, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. So I've said this is uh, talking of spiritual poverty in verse 20. Uh, Well, why why do I say that? What right do I have to say that? Uh, Luke just simply says, blessed are those who are poor. And he says, woe to those who are rich. So what business do I have saying this is uh, speaking of spiritual matters primarily? A couple things. First, uh, within Luke, I think this is clearly Jesus' meaning. I think we can see this within the context of Luke. So, We've already seen some language like this being used to describe spiritual realities. We've already seen this. So in chapter 1, verse 52 and 53, when Mary, in Mary's Magnificat, uh, she talks about God lifts up the lowly, feeds the hungry, sends away the rich. We talked back then, these are, these are spirit, she's describing spiritual realities. Uh, again, Jesus' previous sermon from Isaiah 61 Uh, Verses 1 and 2, which we looked at back in chapter 4, it talks there about how Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, and we talked back then about how these are, 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 must be understood as describing uh, spiritual realities, those who are spiritually poor and in captive to sin, enslaved to their flesh and to sin. And we we talked about that more. You can go back and and listen to to that sermon if you wish. Um, But but, uh, so, so again, we're talking within the context of Luke. We've already seen this language being used to describe spiritual realities. Also, we've seen John the Baptist preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That was his message. And the importance of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. If the materially poor possess the kingdom of God, why preach repentance? That doesn't even make sense. Why bear fruit in keeping with repentance if all you need to enter the kingdom is to be materially poor? Just get rid of some things and you'll be fine. That wouldn't make sense. Moreover, we've already seen a rich man get saved. Levi, or Matthew, was called to be a disciple by Christ. Later on in Luke, we'll see Zacchaeus, a very wealthy uh, tax collector as well, uh, enter into the kingdom and be saved, though he was rich. And so if the woes were just for those who were materially rich, uh, it would seem that neither of these men could be saved. Further, we've seen uh, that Jesus' mission as the Christ was to overcome the curse that Adam brought into the world. Uh, we looked at that back in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2. Nope. Chapter 3. The end of chapter 3. He's the, the greater Adam, 
the second Adam, the last Adam. He's come to reverse what Adam did. And what did Adam do? He sinned. And he brought sin into the world. And so Jesus has come to reverse that curse of sin. And so material poverty occurs ultimately because we live in a sin-cursed world. Famine would not occur if it weren't for the fact that sin entered into the world. Oppression of poor people would not occur if it weren't for the fact that sin is in the world. So ultimately, even underneath material poverty is this issue of sin that Jesus has come to address. So the context of Luke, there's a lot more that could be said, but I think shows that this is really best and and must be understood as ultimately referring to a spiritual poverty. But also, there's Old Testament. There's there's other reasons. Uh, In the Old Testament, this language is used to speak of spiritual realities. So David, for example... Uh, In Psalm 86.1, he says, this is King David, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. David was the king. He was not materially poor, but he had a great need for the Lord. He recognized his spiritual poverty. Psalm 34.6, likewise, he does the same. He says, this poor man cried out to God. And even there, we're told the context is when he was on the run from Saul, And so you could say maybe he had some material poverty at that point in his life. But if you read the psalm quite clearly, David is not saying, he's referring to something much more significant than just the fact that he lacked some material goods. He understood his poverty before the Lord, his spiritual poverty, and he cried out for help. So there's Old Testament precedent for this kind of language. Thirdly, theologically, if you enter the kingdom through material poverty then justification by faith is out the window. Right? You can be justified by just getting rid of all your stuff and being in material poverty. And if you, So if you accept that this is just material poverty, you're going to run into all kinds of other theological problems as you try to put the scriptures together. So there's very valid theological reasons. Uh, fourth, if this is true, then alleviating poverty would be a bad thing and would be unhelpful to people's souls. And yet... We see it happen throughout Scripture. Paul took up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem who were experiencing famine and poverty. Why would he do that if if that was their ticket? Fifth, the Bible just does not condemn all wealth altogether. So, Abraham, for example, we're explicitly told he was a wealthy man and that this was actually a sign of blessing, in his case, from God. God blessed him with, with his wealth. Others as well. David, Samuel, was blessed with wealth from God. It's not always bad. It's not condemned outright. Rather, the abuses that are often tied to wealth, those are the things that are condemned regularly throughout Scripture and warnings about the pitfalls of wealth. So trampling the poor or committing other injustice to gain or to keep wealth, that is sinful and that is wrong. We've seen that as we've been going through the uh, minor prophets in, on Wednesday. Amos, Micah, we saw it again when the wealthy people were trampling the poor in order to gain their wealth and keep their wealth, uh, and, and even cases selling poor people and whatnot. That is, that is a grave injustice, and those people are condemned. The love of money, we're warned against that. That is wicked and is a root of all kinds of evil, various kinds of evil. 
setting our hopes on wealth instead of on God, and not being generous with it. These are sins the Bible points out. There are many pitfalls of wealth, most assuredly, but, all to get, but it's not just denounced altogether. Finally, another reason why I think this is spiritual, Matthew's Gospel explicitly says it's so when he gives his Sermon on the Mount. So he says here, blessed are the poor in spirit. And so Matthew's giving the sense of it. Matthew's telling us, he's removing doubt and saying, this is what Jesus was talking about. Blessed are those who understand their spiritual bankruptcy before God, who have a poverty of spirit. So these pronouncements of blessing are referring primarily to spiritual realities. Before we get in more to just what poverty of spirit means, uh, this word blessed, as, he, as, as these pronouncements of blessing on these people, what, ultimately what this means is uh, favored. That those who, those who are blessed are those who are in a favored position or state before God. And this is a gracious favor, a gracious position before God. That's what being blessed means here. And so he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those who have seen and understood their spiritual bankruptcy before a holy God. It's, the person, it's this person who possesses the kingdom, we're told. And this is why they're blessed. They're blessed of God because they, they've, they've received, they've, they've entered into the kingdom of God. The blessed person is one who's grasped something of their wretchedness before God. Their inability to do anything about it. That compared with God's holiness, they are way down here. I have nothing with which I can commend myself before God. This is the person who's poor in spirit. They're at the end of themselves. I can't make myself good enough. I cannot do this. And so the blessed person has called out for forgiveness and grace to God. David says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, in Psalm 32. And he goes on to talk about the wonderful relief that comes when you quit bottling it up inside and refusing to confess it to the Lord, and you finally just confess it to Him. And he says, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, and clearly graciously forgiven by God. So one who sees this need repents and looks to Jesus in faith, and it is this person, we're told, who possesses the kingdom. That is, they've, they've entered into the heavenly Jerusalem and reside there as citizens of Christ's kingdom. And so all who are born again, born of Christ's Spirit, who are trusting in Him, reside in His kingdom now. And when Christ returns and consummates his kingdom, brings it in its fullness, we will take up residency there forever. And this is why it's blessed to be one who recognizes their poverty before God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But, in verse 24, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Again, this is describing the spiritual reality of a person who sees no need in themselves. They see no bankruptcy. I'm fine. This is, this is the good person. I, 
I'm not that bad. I'm okay. This is certainly common for those who are materially rich, though it's not just them, nor is it all of them. So many who are materially poor have nevertheless been stuck in this pride. If you've worked with some who are poor, you've probably seen this. And while Jesus says it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, since riches often distract people from seeing our spiritual need in poverty, some camels do in fact get through the eye of the needle. And we'll see that when we get to Luke 18 and 19. Zacchaeus, the story of Zacchaeus comes after Jesus says that, and, it, and Zacchaeus is the camel that gets through the eye of a needle. That nothing is impossible with God. So, like the materially rich man who sees no need for, for more, being unaware of coming famine, so are all who, are pr- who proudly see no sin, nothing in their lives to repent of, who do not see a need for being reconciled to a holy God. And of these people, Jesus says, they've received all the consolation they will get now in this life. Things will only get worse. The woes, ultimately, will be meted out in the end when they stand before God, their judge. The most self-confident person now, perhaps blinded by their material wealth, whatever their situation may be, on that day they stand before God, will perish. Comfort will be gone, and hell will await. This is, this is heavy. This is a serious, weighty thing Jesus is saying. And so I ask you, do you see your poverty of spirit? You do or you don't? There's two groups, two types of people. Do not let riches or anything keep you from considering this. Dwell on, consider the brevity of your life. And the fact that you will stand before God one day. And you cannot stand before Him in your sin and survive that moment. You need forgiveness. You have great poverty of spirit. And Jesus Christ is the only one who can help you. Think of your sin, the way you fall short of the glory of God and His perfect righteous standard. Think of the way you fall short of your own standards. Parents, you, can, you know this. As you chastise your child in anger for their anger, you've experienced this. We fall short of even our own standards, let alone God's. Repent of your sin. Come to the kingdom. Forsake your best efforts. Enter in by the grace of God. Look to Jesus Christ who bled, who died, who rose again from the dead to forgive and to save and to justify poor sinners. 
And if you have, if you do trust Him, then brothers and sisters, if you've seen this poverty of spirit and you're trusting Christ, we have the assurance here from Christ that we possess the kingdom of God. It belongs to us. We're citizens of His kingdom. That's amazing. Really, it is. You're a citizen of God's kingdom. The heavenly Jerusalem, as Hebrews 12 says. That truly is a blessing. I'm not that patriotic. I, I don't know. There's various reasons for that, I suppose. But... I don't know. It's just not that exciting to be a Canadian citizen. I realize I'm super blessed. I'm not complaining about it, but I just I don't get all psyched about that. But to be a citizen of God's kingdom, the God that we have sinned against, that in His grace He's come to rescue and save us and draw Him back to Himself, to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son, is a wonderful reality. That's a citizenship worth being excited about. And so be encouraged by that. Rejoice in that. Stay the course. What could be, what's more consequential than that? Nothing, really. Nothing. Stay the course. Christians are those who see, understand, and repent of their spiritual poverty, whereas unbelievers do not. They do not see the need. The second contrast There are those who hunger for righteousness, and there are those who do not, who have have no desire for righteousness. So look again at verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And then the corresponding woe in 25. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. In Matthew's version, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So we know Jesus is speaking again of spiritual realities, I've already made that case, and the hunger here that he's talking about is identified in Matthew's gospel as a hunger for righteousness. This is a characteristic of those who belong to Christ. Man's fundamental problem of sin can be described in various ways. Certainly it's a spiritual poverty, as we've seen, but it can also be described as a lack of righteousness. Human beings in our sin, we lack righteousness. We're not good. And it's Jesus who gives to believers his own perfect righteousness, which he earned through his perfect life. He gives it to us like a robe that we put on. It is a righteousness that is imputed or credited to our account. The account of everyone who believes in Him. It's as though His righteousness becomes ours. And it is that righteousness that justifies us before God. It is this righteousness which forms the basis of our right standing with God. It's no work of our own. It comes through faith. It's purely the righteousness of Christ. So Paul says in Philippians 3.8, For Jesus' sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, all of his works and best efforts, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
obedience, keeping the law, but that I may have that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So certainly when a person recognizes their spiritual poverty, they will see their own lack of righteousness before God. And even if they can't articulate it that way, that, they'll see that. And, so, and we are given the perfect righteousness of Jesus when we believe. But while believers are in the moment of, of salvation, in the moment they, they are called and, and believe upon Christ, while believers in that moment have a right standing with God, are justified, they're made righteous before God, declared righteous before God, I should say, that is something that is fixed for eternity by the power of God, the moment one believes, but we are still nonetheless sinful beings. Right? We still commit sin. So some of the reformers talk about this. We are simultaneously just, you know, declared righteous before God, and yet also we still are sinful people. We still wrestle with the remnants of our flesh. And so Christians begin a process of what is often referred to as a progressive sanctification. That is where we are being made more holy as we continue to live our lives. Our position before God never changes. We're justified solely by the righteousness of Christ credited to our account. That's our only hope ever of being made right with God. But our lives slowly begin to change and begin to, we begin to bear more fruit and we begin to look more like Christ. We're made slowly more into the image of Christ. And that's a process that continues throughout our lives, however many days we have, and will ultimately be complete uh, when Christ returns or when He calls us home. And so, believers continue to hunger and thirst for righteousness, desiring to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus. You've all known hunger to some extent. Hopefully not super severe, but you've all known it to some extent. It brings with it a feeling of discomfort and longing for something. Something that you lack and that you need. And this is an, the illustration used to describe a disciple's desire for righteousness. It's a hunger. And so a believer continues to see sinfulness in their life and is at war with it. A believer hungers for righteousness, to be more like my Savior, to be more like Christ. And the promise given here is that you will be satisfied. There's the promise. Not only do we have the righteousness of Christ credited to our account now, but we will one day be perfected. One day we will no longer feel hunger for righteousness because we will actually be made perfect. When the Lord Jesus returns and establishes the new earth, at that time we will receive resurrected bodies. And we will finally be righteous in every way and there will be no more sin. 2 Peter 3.13 says, But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We will dwell with our Lord for eternity in perfect righteousness. No more battles with sin. No more lack in any sense. We will lack nothing. 
We will be with the Lord. We will be made whole. We will be satisfied at that time. But there's a corresponding woe to those who are full now in verse 25. And for those people, Jesus says, those people will one day be hungry in verse 25. And so this is the opposite of the the blessing. Those who are full now are those who, again, see no need for God and His righteousness. No desire for it. These people think they have all they need. Again, they might be those who declare themselves to be good people. I need no righteousness. I don't lack anything. That's insulting. This also takes the form often as just a despising of God's righteousness, a despising of His standards, of what He says is right and wrong. They don't like His standards. I remember a friend of mine in college said, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't, I don't, you know, I don't believe everything that's in the Bible. He says, like, you know, the stuff about adultery and fornication being bad. Well, that man did not hunger and thirst for righteousness. He despised the righteousness of God that is revealed in Scripture, that moral purity. And on these people, Jesus pronounces a woe, for they will one day be hungry. When judgment falls, these people will see and understand then what it was they lacked. Do you hunger for righteousness? Does this describe you? Is this a characteristic of you? Do you see your need for Christ's righteousness? Or do you not? If you do, perhaps see your need for forgiveness and righteousness, do you desire it? Or do you feel a sense of grudging about it? Is your attitude, look, just tell me what I need to to do and what I need to say and then just leave me alone. I just want to get in and then back off. Unfortunately, if that's you, Jesus' words here expose you. Blessed is the one who hungers for righteousness. The gospel deals with the heart of men and women, with desires It isn't just an intellectual thing. It's not something we just, okay, I'll sign, grudgingly. We can't get by with mere lip service. We can fool one another, but we cannot fool the Lord. Our hearts are laid bare before Him. No creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom, to whom we must give account. Hebrews 4.13 And so this is a very good test for our own hearts to see if we are in the faith. Do you long for righteousness? If you don't, or if you have never, you need to repent of this. And look to Christ in faith. Ask God to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh, to give you new desires, to make you a new creature who desires these things, that, that would now love the things that God loves Despise the things that God despises. This is, this is a characteristic of a believer. And if you are a Christian, 
but have felt the cares of the world, perhaps, weigh on you and perhaps displace some of your desire for righteousness. Likewise, confess that to God and ask Him to renew your desires. And let's commit ourselves to greater effort in sanctification. Yes, God is going to see us through in His faithfulness, but He calls us likewise to seek Him. So let us seek to set our minds on things above, earnestly praying for a greater experience of personal holiness. Let us again, afresh, present ourselves, our lives to God, as living sacrifices, as people for His pleasure, being transformed by the renewing of our minds as we come to His Word, correcting our misunderstanding, correcting where we are in error, in our beliefs, in our practice, wherever it might be, renewing our minds. Let us pursue and, and, and rejoice in love, joy, peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruits of the Spirit, righteousness. Let us remind ourselves that that these things are good. These are Christ-like. And ultimately... Let us remember to look to Christ, our perfect, justifying righteousness. We are not saved by really, 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 really desiring righteousness. That's not how one gets in. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Desire for righteousness is a characteristic of the Lord's people, and it's evidence of a new heart. It's not the way we get saved. And so, again, we, we must always remember we look to Jesus Christ. We take comfort in Him. He's our only hope now and forever. It's Him we need. And so before getting into all of the uh, ethics that are presented in Christ's sermon here, Sermon on the Plain, he begins with contrasting the characteristics of those in the kingdom and those who are not, in order to have us stop here right at the beginning and consider the matter. To which group do I belong? It's the moment of truth. And we all come to this moment at some point. Maybe this is it for you. There are two groups. There are those who are in Adam, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, who see no poverty, find no lack or desire of righteousness, and there are those who are in Christ, who see and understand their total spiritual bankruptcy and who grasp their need for righteousness and are clinging to Christ. To such, Jesus says, the kingdom belongs, and they will be satisfied. In Christ, we have every reason to be hopeful as we look forward to his return. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for sending Christ to redeem 
poor sinners. God, I pray we would all see, see ourselves as such. Not because, Lord, we, we want to just wallow in misery or make people feel bad, but so that we might throw ourselves upon your mercy and grace. God, it is such that you say belong to the kingdom. God, we thank you for your mercy and grace through Jesus. God, I pray that you would just inflame in all of us a greater desire for righteousness. That we would war against the sinful flesh that remains. And even as our desire, as, as those sinful desires can conflict with what your word says and with what is righteousness, I pray that we would have victory over our sin. That we would remember that your word and your commands and what you declare is good and right is truly good. Even if we don't fully understand it. Your ways are good. May we rely on on your word to guide us and not our feelings. Help us, God. We are weak. We, We need you. We ask you for your help. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.